This is Dialogue, a podcast of the Lenten preaching series recorded live at Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis. I'm Katherine Bush, Associate Rector for Formation here at Calvary. And tonight, my guest is Rabbi Katie Bowman. She's the senior rabbi at Turo Synagogue in New Orleans, Louisiana. But Katie is no stranger to Memphis. She previously served at Temple Israel for 10 years. She was also the founding chairperson of MICA, Memphis Interfaith Coalition for Action and Hope. And as you're about to find out, if you don't already know, she is a whip smart and also wise and kind and funny. She is a wife and mother of three, and I am very glad and very lucky to call her a friend. So this is gonna be real fun. Hi. Hi. Welcome to Memphis. Thank you. You've had quite a journey. We're really glad that you're here. <laughs> Me too. Really glad that you're here. It wasn't the smoothest ride up here today, so I'm very, very happy to and be here. And that story would be its here. own podcast. It would be. <laughs> I feel like maybe for another time. Another yeah. time. Another definitely. time. Ask her after. But let's go back and start a little bit with your story, which is obviously different from mine, but maybe similar. So both of us grew up in the South in the latter part of the 20th century. And in my tradition, we were were ordaining women, but I didn't know any or see any for the most part. And so coming to be a woman as a spiritual leader in my tradition is a, is a story for another podcast, but I'd love to hear a little bit about yours, how you became the spiritual leader that you are in your tradition. Can you tell us just a little bit about how you got to be where you are? Sure. I think I'd probably say similarly, I knew theoretically there were women rabbis, but growing up, I didn't know any. Mm -hmm. But I was nurtured and empowered in leadership from a very young age by the congregation I grew up in, Temple B'nai Israel in Little Rock, and at Jewish summer camp in, of all places, Utica, Mississippi. I <laughs> And I had a lot of support in becoming a religious leader. I thought when I was younger that I would be a cantor, which is you know the mus a musical... Um, clergy person in in a Jewish synagogue. I was very lucky after college to be invited to be an intern at Temple Israel Memphis by Cantor John Kaplan and Rabbi Micah Greenstein, both of whom were just the most important mentors at my young age. And by the end of that year, I knew that I wanted to work in a congregation, and I decided that I wanted to be a rabbi because I felt so passionately about serving the South. Mm. And as you may know, as I know many here know, the Jewish communities of the South are, um, are wonderful, but Memphis is certainly the biggest of any of them. And so there aren't that many congregations that are lucky enough to have a cantor and a rabbi. And I thought if I want to equip myself to serve my people wherever they are, wherever it's needed, I ought to have, you know, the the degree that would allow me to do that in the most flexible way. So I decided to go to rabbinical school. And I did that. I went to, I lived in Jerusalem for a year as a part of that study, and then four years in Cincinnati before being lucky enough to come back to Memphis and serve And so the then now, what is it like to be a rabbi now? So moving forward in your story, serving in the South in 2022 as a woman, in the Congress, in both in Memphis and now in New Orleans, what is what is it like to be a rabbi these days? It's wonderful to be a rabbi <laughs> these days. <laughs> I love it. I loved it here, and I love it in I love it in New Orleans as well. I'm lucky that both in Memphis and in New Orleans, I am not 
the first woman to serve in the congregations that I serve. Mm-hmm. In Memphis, there, have been se- there were several female rabbis before me and after me. And the senior rabbi of Turo before me was also a woman. So I, yes. I, I felt I wasn't a novelty in that, in that way, which right. I think probably some places it's hard to be the first. Right. Probably lots of yeah. places it's hard to be the first. And I found that at every place that I've served, even as a student, relationship building um, sort of broke through any preconceived mm-hmm. notions mm-hmm. or um, hesitations that a congregation might have about viewing a woman as the sp- a spiritual leader. And right. it, it hasn't. It didn't take long to see that and um, and to work through it. So I felt very a tremendous amount of respect and honor given to me by my congregations, which I'm yeah. very fortunate. I'm glad to, to hear have. that. That's lovely. That's really great. And thinking, too, about this point in time and as, as leaders in lots of, in lots of situations and, and this poignant moment um, in our communities, whether religious or political or whatever they are, there, I mean, obviously we all know there's so many challenges and there's so many things that we need to help our people rise to meet be, and, and ourselves to rise to meet the challenges, right? And I know that one of the things that you have been thinking about a lot is meeting the challenge of fear, both personally and professionally, and then helping your community kind of name that as like, this is something that's like the, the kernel issue behind so many other issues, right? Like it's embedded. I mean, you can just pick a topic and if you dig down enough, there's there's fear somewhere, little kernel down there in the, in the midst yeah. of it. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you name that, how you dig at that, how you equip people to face that, how you face that and for yourself. Can you talk a little bit about yeah, sure. facing fear? I think it, it has felt really important to me for a long time, before, before COVID, early in my rabbinate. So we're, you know, we're communicators. That's, our, that's one of our most important roles. We, people offer us these microphones and, <laughs> right. uh, and, really and patiently sit there while we share you know, words that are on our hearts and that we learn from our tradition. And so it became, it's been very important to me for a long time to think about how best to communicate, especially the hardest Things, the hardest learnings that I think I have, or the observations I have, and ju- and we know this just from interpersonal experiences that we, when we're acting out of fear, we can't hear anything, we can't see anything, and and it can put up defenses and walls where there don't need to be any. So as I began to notice that, it really began to inform the way that I speak and the way that I write, and I think addressing core fears, which of course fear is connected to. Grief, right? We think we're going to lose something that we care about, and that's scary, and that's sad, and that that happens in relationships, that happens politically with a changing world. It's all based in those kinds of feelings. Those are so deeply personal. So, at, when I sort of awoke to the need for systemic and structural change to create a more just community for us all, it it occurred to me that really we're talking about digging to the very heart of people's emotions and fear is there. Why Why is it so hard to make the changes we all know we need to make? Because we're terrified of those right. changes. What will the world look like if things operate differently? What will What will I be if I don't hold on to this identity that I've always had, if, if the way that our society is organized changes? The reason people put up walls, it seems like it's anger and hate, but I think underneath all that it's it's just it's fear it's 
Well, and what you just said too about connecting that it's even even with fear, it's also grief, right? And so that is a much that elicits a much more compassionate response. Like if I think you're grieving, that that brings out a different response in me than if I think you're mad, right? Yeah. I mean, even just in the way I respond to you, yes. or that you, or that I think about how to just what I what I might do or what I might say or how I might try to help is a very different response that comes from me depending on how I imagine your core feeling. Yes, I think that's a, such an important point. And I think the, when, when that, came, that came to fruition for me here in Memphis, there were, I think, I don't know what year it was, but it was one of the first lynching sites project dedications. Mm-hmm. And those were incredible. I mean, I know Calvary has been a leader in that in that field, and I'm very moved when I think about MLK 50 and the service that took place here. This was a little before that, and people are asked in those moments when different sites were dedicated and monuments put up for the people who were lynched in those places to share what they're angry about, what they're sad about. And there was um, there was a man who stood up at one of those, and he and he said, "I'm so I'm." So, I've been so angry for so long. I've been so afraid for so long to admit that I have been behaving in the wrong way, that I haven't wanted to see this truth all around me. Wow. He was he was crying. It was a bit was a big man. It was an old it was an older man who the kind of person who if you looked at him you would think oh he'll never let us see his emotions. Mm. I mean that was the, that mm-hmm. would be your assumption about someone who presented this way. And he cried before the whole group and he said, "I have been taught to be afraid." And I don't want to be afraid anymore. Wow. And when I heard that, I, I thought, well, if he, if he can stand up in front of a group and say that, then probably a lot of other people can too. And if we start connecting with that, that emotional experience, maybe that's, my, that's one of my parts. You know, we're always trying. There's so much work to do. There's so, there's so many important conversations to have. And we all have to ask, what's my part to right. play, what's my work? And I thought perhaps as a clergy person, that's part of my work is to diffuse and help people to lower their defenses so that they can hear what they already know, but they're afraid of. And it feels very, it feels like new work. Like it feels like work for today, right? And it's also super, super old work. Like when I think about like the the readings of Hebrew scripture and the readings of Christian scripture, and one of the most oft-repeated phrases in both of our shared scriptures is the admonition, do not be afraid, do not fear, for I am with you. So if, if people needed to be told that 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years ago, this is not a new problem, right? First of all, like we're not, we're not inventing fear. This is not a brand new issue. And there's, there's also a depth of resources for us to reach into um, we don't have to figure this out like for the first time. Yes. As as leaders now, we have these we have stories, we have histories, we have traditions that we can draw on and lean on and say, oh look, this has been here before, we've been here before. And I and I think about that when you're when you're telling the story about the lynching sites project, which is new work about a, an old problem. In our perspective, you know, 100, 150, 200-year-old problem. But then we've got thousands of years of stories about people being called from their fear into something else. Yes. I think about on Yom Kippur, on the, on the Jewish you know, Day of Atonement, there's this idea that we are supposed to sort of strip down to the most essential parts of our personhood, that actually if you go down deep into yourself— 
you're really good in there. You know, there's mm-hmm. lot, there's lots of purity inside of each person and it gets covered up by layers of all the things that we go through and the defenses we put up, you know, the anger, the selfishness, the fear, the grief and that we're that we try on that day to that's why we fast and we we try not to wear fancy clothes and do all those things that cover up the real us. And I think about I think about that and how mo- most of this work is that just digging down for the good in, mo- in that most people, not everyone, but most people have inside of them. Yeah. And when I think about our scripture and all those admonitions not to be afraid, I think, I'm not saying that the Hebrew is clumsy. It's not clumsy. The Bible's not clumsy. But I think, uh, <laughs> um, but I think I, I, I hear those admonitions and I think, Really, it's we can't help our emotional responses, right? right? We're right. going, we're gonna, things are gonna feel unfamiliar, and they're gonna. We are scare gonna us. be scared. Yep. But it, but it's really about don't don't let your fear dictate your mm. actions. Don't act from fear. You know, right. act from some yeah. act from love. Right. And one of the formative stories of the Torah is this. I mean, the the biggest cautionary tale really is the you know the building of the golden calf, which is just a bunch of people acting from their fear. Mm. And look what they did. They built this horrible thing that destroyed the first set of Ten Commandments. Really, that was the outcome mm-hmm. of that. And a, a nice midrash that that emerges from our tradition about that story is that even though um, the the order is a little different in the in the straight Torah text, the building of the tabernacle, the building of the Mishkan is done with the pieces of the golden calf that oh, actually... I've not um, heard that. Yeah, That's it's lovely. it's a... Well, the, the rabbis have a wonderful creative way of saying there's no early or late we in the lost, Torah. There's we no, really lost out. You, we, we can switch the order that. around all we yeah. want and we're still within yeah. our... Yeah. <laughs> still yeah. within bounds. It's yeah. super helpful. But um, the idea is that you... We all act from fear sometimes, mm-hmm. but... Those pieces, the mess that we make, actually can also be the source of our right. redemption. That's what I took from that that gentleman who stood up and spoke. This, like, I'm, he he had so much to give because of the pieces of his previous golden yeah, calf. That's beautiful, and I think it's true too. Whether whether we describe it as clumsy or not, it's really hard to state the to flip the "do not be afraid" into like a positive, like be something else. I mean, like it's, it be brave is, is close, but even that's not really the same. So I appreciate the idea of don't act from your fear or don't let that be the driver to act from a place of courage, to try to, to be open. I don't know. You know, like when I think of fear, the, the movement that goes with it is a very closed movement and, yes. and the open heartedness of courage, right? The courage comes from the the R word comes from the French, which is cur, which is heart, and this idea of like that I could be vulnerable and that I could be trusting, that I could be brave, whatever that might be. And to think about if we know what fear looks like in our world and we know what it looks like when people act from that, to think about what it looks like when people are acting from the good in them, the pure in them, the core of them that you that we believe is there. I believe that too. Some examples of that and some thinking about that, you know, I don't know what comes to mind for you. Well, what I've been, I've been amazed. I'm sure many of you, I mean, our hearts are um, aching for what's happening in Ukraine mm-hmm. and the world captivated by this president, mm-hmm. Zelensky, who is, happens to be Jewish, which is remarkable 
that uh, there could be a Jewish president of this of this land that has been so hard for Jews to live in and also so glorious for Jews to live in. A huge amount of our tradition, our mystical tradition emerges from that place. But I think about us watching him and and labeling, moved by his courage. And it's what what is it he's doing that's so courageous? And I think the veneer is, well, he's, you know, he's fighting. He's got a gun and he's fighting. Really what it is, I think, is that he's allowing himself, so many of them, Ukrainians are allowing themselves to be vulnerable, even though they're fighting. Their guard is down in a way. They don't know what's going to happen. We, and when we enter in, even into, enter into our conversations that we think are going to be scary, that vulnerability is what indicates our courage. We're, we're going to walk into something, into an arena. I'm you know, right. sort of quoting Brene Brown as one of my rabbis. And um, <laughs> you know, we walk into— She's a good rabbi, yeah. <laughs> she is a good rabbi. Walk into an arena, and we don't know exactly how the chips are going to fall, but we know what we have to do, and we have to be true to ourselves. That is courage. That's mm-hmm. courageous. But it really right. starts with that acceptance of vulnerability. We can't always control everything. Right. And then not the the tanks and the image, which is, I mean, again, I know they're fighting a real war. I'm not pretending that that's not happening. But the, the sense of, like, I'm going to stay and see this through... Yes. Even when I could run, I could do a lot of other things, right? Or I'm going to, and when I don't know, the outcome is not given, which is why we're yes. all kind of holding our breaths in so many ways yes. as it unfolds. And that's just, you know, that is certainly just one example. But I, I think of, I think that we have to summon a similar kind of courage when we're walking into any experience that we don't we can't control and can't anticipate how mm-hmm. it's going to end. Mm-hmm. And so much of so many of the challenges that we face now as a society almost all of them <laughs> all <laughs> right the big are ones. Yeah. all the big ones. I mean how we're, how we're going to address climate change, how we're going to address the refugee crisis in this world, all of it is going to require us to walk into situations that we can't control and we don't know how it's going to end and to allow for the fact that we might do it wrong. We mm-hmm. might we might have to admit that we're not experts. We might have to feel guilt for what we haven't done before. But if we want to engage in that, then we have to accept those things. And so I think that is, I think that is what we need to find in ourselves is the ability to be, to be wrong and to look silly and to look foolish and to feel unsure. How can, we can't weather it any other way. Right. And it reminds me, too, of that idea of, like, thinking about leaders and the idea that like when the problem gets to to your desk or whoever you know that like if it were easy it wouldn't get all the way there right like if you're at the top of whatever your community's system is whether it's again I mean climate change is for all of us to wrestle with and if it were simple it wouldn't get all the way to the leadership right Right. and so those are the problems that don't have obvious answers, that don't have easy, like, oh, well, if we just did this, then, problem, you know, problem solved. Or yeah. that we don't, we can't see the one, two, three steps of, like, this is the obvious path. But, no, we can only see the next step, and we have to take that step without knowing the steps that will come after after those Yeah, steps. and that, I mean, that's, you know, that reminds me of, you know, Dr. King's beautiful mm. quote about the, staircase and you don't have to can't see the whole thing and you can only take the first step in faith and see right. and see what comes next that's really what's required of all of us now no matter what we're facing which is why that this has been so much on my mind i think that if we're going to equip each other to 
face the world that we have before us, we're going to have to be able to be brave together and not act from our fear. Right. And that that sounds like all the big things, but it's also the ordinary things. The most intimate things. The most everyday, ordinary Wednesday things of just, oh, I don't know how this conversation is going to go. I don't know how this is going to end up. I don't know what's going to happen after I say these things mm-hmm. or go to this place or meet this person. I, I felt that so deeply when, as we were building Micah in the very beginning mm-hmm. in, in 2016, 2017, and we were having meetings all over the city mm-hmm. and everybody was walking into a house of worship that they had never been in before. It was constant and you would be you know, driving it in a neighborhood you'd never been in before and you didn't know where you were going to park and who you were going to sit with and was anybody going to talk to me. <laughs> I mean, these are all sorts of, many, many people here came Sounds to like some of those school. early meetings. Right, it's like right. middle school. <laughs> it is like school. But the, and accepting that, you know, sort of welcoming that in and saying, I, I want to be in this space. I want to have this conversation. I want to take on the problems and stand in solidarity. And to do that, I'm going to have to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have to, to walk into newness and let that be okay. So I, it occurs to me as I as I think about those things that our houses of worship that we that we have and that's where we explore and experience the most intimate things in our lives. That's where we learn what we're made of and and pray for strength. So we have to be able to talk about this in a religious context. It feels like the right place to talk about it. Right, and to think about that we might do that work. Um, first in our own communities, right? But then, like you're saying, then we have to be able to to bridge them and to go into each other's and to cross over into those interfaith spaces and to hear your story, not just to stay in my little enclave. I might need to retreat to that. I might need to go there to be bolstered, to be encouraged, but then to go back across, to keep going back out across um, and thinking about those those encounters. And I know that that that, that interfaith work is is necessary and needful. And I also know too that in a in a world where it seems, again, to bring us back to kind of a little bit of where we started, but thinking about like the um the dominant idea of like our identities in the South and and to think about how we might reach out to one another and learn from and and be engaged with each other in a way that is vulnerable, but is also true to, and remaining true to like, and this is what I believe, and this is what you believe, and these are our, where our stories connect, and this is where they're different, and to be open to those um, those moments. I don't yes, know. Yes, those moments of encounter, and and to not be afraid of the boundaries that we have. I mean, mm-hmm. with the, this, this, the surer we are of, you know, who we are, I think the more the more compelling our relationships are. I mean, we don't we don't all blend into each other perfectly, and that's right. and that's, that's okay. That's good. Right? That's yeah. good. That's yeah. the way. That's the way that it should be. And it's it's also there's con- there's constant discussion. I mean, Ca- you know, Calvary is a congregation that's so deeply involved in community outreach work. You know, social impact and social justice. Temple Israel is much the same in that regard. And I think that in these big vibrant houses of worship. It's so important that we recognize all those different expressions of the work that needs to take place. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is definitely out, you know, <laughs> out and about, and it's and it's um, having very hard conversations. Sometimes there's a fight to be had. Sometimes we have to leverage the power that we have to to win on an important issue. But that can't be all we do because the work that the work to get to that place where we actually are changing the way that we function as a society, it just starts in the most intimate of places. And where, where, where else will we work 
on that except for around our kitchen tables and right. in the pews of our sanctuaries. Right, yeah. So I'd love to hear a little bit, speaking of the pews of our sanctuaries, a priest in our tradition, Barbara Brown Taylor, who I know spoke at Temple Israel not too, well, it must have been before COVID, so that's a while ago now. It seems like not that long ago. Um, she has written a book and came to Memphis and talked about holy envy and this idea of what we admire in each other's traditions. And just thinking a little bit about the role of, of ritual and of worship and, and of timekeeping. And one of the things that if I have some holy envy, and I have actually quite a bit for the traditions of my, of my Jewish brothers and sisters, is that, is that way of timekeeping and, and marking both individual growth and b'nai vitzvahs and, and, the, and the seasons of life and the year of, li- of life and things like that. But um, you and I were having a conversation not too long ago about how hard it is to remember what where we are in time these days and COVID time is just a big old mess. And I can't remember when Barbara Brown Taylor was here and it was a long time ago actually. (laughs) And so I'd love to hear a little bit as you're, as you're thinking about like how you hold your community together through those rituals, through the, the deep history of, of timekeeping in the Jewish tradition, but also like what, again, what we were talking about, about just remembering where we are in time today, that it's this season and it's actually almost spring. And where, where, where does that show up for you? And coming, maybe, not, I don't want to say coming out of COVID, but in COVID in this, land, in this, in this moment, of, in this particular moment, whatever yeah. it is. Well, I, I found, and I have some holy envy too, which we can talk oh, wait, about yeah, certainly. Yeah. I found that Jewish tradition was particularly up to the task of mm-hmm. weathering, of it was a very useful tool during the pandemic. I, and I think that, I think many of my congregants and fellow Jews agreed because of that, well, a few, a few different components of it. First of all, that the prayers that we say, which are, it's a very fixed liturgy. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, yeah. I know that. We do that. Yeah, yeah, right. I know that's something that we share. There are times when we go through that liturgy and it feels like, well, okay, now it's time to say this one. And now it's time to say <laughs> this one. I mean, I'm just guessing that sometimes people feel that way. But during during this time of crisis, the themes that were embedded in these prayers, they came they came alive in a way that that even for me, and I've, you know, I'm a rabbi, I've studied it for a long time and been praying for a long time. I had never really felt them as deeply. And I thought these prayers were composed by people who were in touch with their vulnerability. They mm. understood the need to cling to these themes, to reinforce them. They they clearly felt tossed about in a world. It wasn't always a, a pandemic. I mean, there are other, unfortunately, other plagues that have that the Jews have experienced over time. But the prayers felt resonant, and mm-hmm. and so it seemed it seemed to me that that was helpful uh, to tether us. And I found that many in my congregation, and, and I'm curious about whether that happened for some of you here. Jewish time became this this amazing another amazing tether. People began baking challah, <laughs> and and they and they you know Shabbat Shabbat felt like something that for a moment. We had time to pay att- Sabbath, mm-hmm. you know, that we had time to pay attention to, and that even though it blended in in many ways to lot to every other day because our days were so very much the same, and there was there was this understanding like if I want this time to be special, I have to make it special, which is the whole idea, right? Time is mush unless we decide to make it 
not mushy. Right. So yeah. Um, so people that that was that we worked we clung to that as uh-huh. well. And and I think maybe most moving of all to, was watching as clergy had the blessing continually to be a part of people's most sacred moments in their lives mm-hmm. and the way that people had to fight for them and and mm-hmm. really ask ourselves all of us what is the most important thing about this thing I'm about to observe what's the most important thing about this wedding what's the most important moment of this bar about mitzvah who really needs to be at this graveside funeral and and watching families navigate that was it was so deeply moving yeah. and it and t- the life cycle events that took place during the last two years are some of the most beautiful and meaningful I've ever been a part of because mm-hmm. because we had to struggle so hard to have them. I'm sure that is similar. Yeah, I know, definitely think tradition. that there's a sense of the you made new priorities, you were making different choices because you had to. And I think also that sense of like, what are we going to wait on and what are we not going to wait on? Yes. Right? Like what what can I put off in hopes that there's a better time? And what can I not? What am I not going to wait around? And and I think there was a moment where we were all like, well, we'll just wait a few weeks and this will all be fine. <laughs> early, early on we thought that, right? Uh, right, 14 days to flatten the curve and then it's all going to be okay. Remember oh. the flatten the curve moment? But then there was a sense of like, how much can I put on hold? And then figuring out a some, some new path forward yes. for... I can't put, I can't keep waiting. I have to figure out how to live. Live now. Live now. Yes. yes. You know, our, in our tradition, you know, Passover is approaching, just like mm-hmm. Easter is approaching. And there, there are lots of different explanations for the matzah, right? Um, there's the, the delicious food that we all can't wait to have. But there's, there's also, I mean, that's the most, that's the most important one. But the, the, there's this idea, you know, of the difference between matzah and challah is leavening, right? Mm-hmm. The challah is big and fluffy and delicious. But matzah, matzah is sustenance too. And there is one just more mystical train of thought about Passover that we, our interrogation of ourselves during Passover is, like, what is the most essential part of my life? What is the most essential part of my practice? When I give thanks for my redemption, for my freedom, what am I really giving thanks for? And what's, mm. and what's, the, what's the comments, right? What's the fluff? What's the, <laughs> what's the thing that makes it big and delicious and luxurious? I love that, but I don't have to have it. And I think that that question, like sort of what's the matzah of my life, mm-hmm. was the question we all had to ask ourselves over the last two years. And there were... There were times when, when we thought, you know, the, ma- the matzah of this moment is actually the 100 closest friends, and I want to wait until I can have that moment. But there are, others, there are other times where the matzah of this moment is, is laying my loved one to rest with these 10 people, and I don't want to wait. There, there may be wonderful tributes to be paid, but, but really this is, the, this is the commandment to follow right now. And, right. And, and we all answer those questions differently. There's no one right answer. Right. Yeah. But those, that felt, even, even in the worst of times, like a particularly productive and healthy set of mm-hmm. questions to be asking ourselves because there is so much, there's so much excess, right? We're so busy. <laughs> We're so, everything yeah. is so inflated all the time. It can be hard to remember. Why are we doing all this? What is... Right. What's the essence? And it's a different way of thinking through, like, what is on hold and what am I waiting for? But that's a, that you're, you're flipping the question around to 
what is most important, what is essential, is a reframing. And, a, and the, again, it's like taking the fear question and flipping it into how, how can I state this in the positive? Like, how can I see the, the goodness and celebrate? What am I being taught that's good here? Yes. Um, and that. Yes. So it kind of related maybe, uh, maybe a little bit of a tangent. So it is curious to me, as you think about celebrating Passover or any of the high holy days in the fall, however it might be, I also know that like you live and work in New Orleans, which maybe, maybe has some other festivals in this season <laughs> I've heard about um, that, are, that are actually a long time ago based on some of ours that become pretty secular <laughs> down there. But I wonder about like what it's like to be down there at Mardi Gras as, <laughs> in a in a Jewish community. I just am curious. Well, you, in the interfaith intersection of that and the encounters that happen there. Well, I, I will. I can chat about New Orleans for a few minutes. I mean, and many people here are from there or <laughs> or know it well. But New Orleans is the his, its history is a place that people have always come to just bust through the boundaries that exist everywhere else. Even in its mm-hmm. early, even before it was. New Orleans, when it was Bulbancho, which is the indigenous name of this place, it means the place of encounter of different cultures. Oh, it was just kind of amazing, right? Yeah, the, the place, yeah, like, it, that, the literal translation may be the, the land of multiple languages, of a land of multiple encounters. Hmm. And so, because of its geography, it played that role. And so, I, there is there is a wonderful sort of messiness to the way that different cultures that are very distinct interact with each other right. in New Orleans. Case in point is that Turo Synagogue, the congregation that I um, serve, is located right on St. Charles Avenue on the parade route. And so part we Mardi Gras is a high holiday at, at Turo. Okay. <laughs> we um, we have stands that we build as m- many other years for um, for children for individuals with physical disabilities so they can watch the parade. Um, on these stands, and then also for the congregation, we we have Shabbati Gras, which is where (laughs) where people come for Shabbat evening services, and then they spill out and they watch the parades. Some of you have been there. It is a wonderful blending, and it doesn't it doesn't feel threatening. I think on either you know in on any in any direction, there is such a celebration there Mm -hmm. of distinctive cultures that this, and then there's also you know this the image of just a big party in the street, not just for Mardi Gras, but any, any old day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so people, people join into each other's celebrations. And mm. um, so I, I really, I loved being a rabbi there during, during Mardi Gras. Yeah. It, was really, yeah. it was great. And that's really lovely. There is this year and many years, it's our, our festival seasons really do kind of overlap because mm-hmm. You know, we just celebrated Purim, which is, mm-hmm. it's not the Jewish Mardi Gras, but it is about feasting and mask wearing and, and partying and revelry. And it isn't, and it, it's sort of, you get that all out of your system. You eat too many hamantash and, and then, <laughs> and then you gear up for Passover, right. which is a much more, it's a, it's a joyful day, but it's a it's solemn a more day. Subdued. Yeah. So, yeah. and you, and you rid yourself of the, of the leavening that was in the hamantashen and, right. and get back to the matzah. Yeah. Yeah. That's fast. I've just been so curious when we were talking a few weeks ago that we were right, you were right coming it was right after Mardi Gras, um, and this like we're one of the reasons we're doing this is because this is our Lenten preaching series, and so like connecting the dots between Mardi Gras has something to do with this actually, but it sometimes people lose the thread. Yeah, right. <laughs> so right, just just making well, that connection. And, and yeah. Every everyone is is welcome to enjoy uh, to enjoy Mardi Gras at. Uh, at Turo, anytime okay. it's, uh, yeah. it's yeah. 
very festive time. So just as we're, we're drawing to a close here, what are some of the things that are saving your life these days? What's getting you through? What helps you? What helps? Oh my goodness. You know, my, my children, of course, mm -hmm. they're uh, thinking about what this is like for them and helping them to remember that there is, there's lots of joy and lots of variety in life and that it's okay to show your whole face sometimes. I mean, they're also, that watch and watching them navigate that and being proud of them for how they're navigating that, that is life giving. I, I do love, I do love living in a city that's filled with music all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's life giving too. I, I've, I've come to believe that um, really beautiful things, you know, music and art and dance and poetry are just, the way that we breathe God into the world. And so even when I walk down the street and there's a, a band on a porch, it feels like a little bit of God to me. Yeah. So that that is life-giving. And you know, my my vocation, my congregation, it feels it feels so vital that we gather this way, that we pray together, that we talk about what is going on, that we that we soothe each other and that we question each other and we sing together, all those things feel holier to me now than ever. And so even though it's been harder to navigate now than it used to be, I feel that I have usually have boundless energy for it because it mm -hmm. feels so it feels so vital. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you to Katie Bowman. Thank you to all of you for being here. Dialogue is a podcast of Calvary's Lenten preaching series, a 99-year-old tradition that invites wise and inspiring speakers into our pulpit during the season of Lent and invites a few of them into this podcast to further the conversation. Dialogue is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, Sam Bryant, Sound Engineer, and Heidi Rupke, Linton Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about the home of dialogue and the Linton Preaching Series, Calvary Episcopal Church is a pretty eclectic bunch of Christian people. We don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. You can subscribe to Dialogue at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee. Thanks again for listening, y'all.